And so we're beginning this new series in the book of Ruth uh, this morning. And as a church, you know, uh, since our meetings outside and, you know, our, our early meetings in the fall, we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament. Right? Those are the scriptures that came after Jesus, right? And they give us a really clear picture of the gospel. They give us a really clear picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I love to share from those. Uh, but there's this whole other part of our Bible that, that existed before Jesus was on earth, uh, before God sent his Messiah. And we call that the Old Testament, right? These are ancient Jewish writings originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, it's the Bible that Jesus had when he walked the earth, right? These are the scriptures that he pointed to. These are the scriptures that the early church had before the accounts of Jesus were written down, before the letters from the apostles were widely circulated. And so this compilation of scripture is it's just invaluable to our spiritual life, right? There's 39 different books. They're written over a, a decent span of time. Uh, it contains narrative literature, it contains poetry, it contains wisdom literature, prophetic writings. It's a diverse compilation of books. You know, maybe, maybe not everyone here even knows that the Old Testament is not one book and the Bible is not one book. It's a compilation of different books written by different authors uh, who were inspired by God, right? Uh, and it's God's word, but it's written over a long period of time. Uh, and so the book of Ruth, that's what we call narrative literature. Uh, it's a story, and it's a story about a family's journey from emptiness to fullness. And um, that woman, who's the main character of the story, is actually not even Ruth, uh, just so you know, even though the book is named after her. Uh, the book of Ruth opens up by talking about a family and Ruth is really important in the story, but she's actually not the main character. And we'll talk about that later. But it opens up by telling us that these events took place uh, during the period of the judges. And so what does that mean, the period of the judges? Uh, it was a wild time in Israel that took place before they had a king. Right Before Israel ever had a king, they had judges. And these are not like legal judges, like you might think of it, uh, like judges who sentence people. Uh, like when we hear the word, um, judges were supposed to be like leaders. They were supposed to be like guardians of the nation. Right, These representatives of the Lord's power in Israel that were supposed to protect and guide Israel. So you can think of them, even especially during that time in Israel's life, more like a tribal chieftain than a king. And, and there's a book in the Old Testament that's called Judges, and it tells us the story of this period of Israel. And it was a dark, dark time in Israel's history. And it's a gruesome, gruesome book, like rated R today. Uh, there are many disturbing accounts about the atrocities that took place during that time in that book. Uh, some of the judges were good, but then they progressively got worse over time. Uh, they end up being unfaithful to God and to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel follow suit, and they're unfaithful to the Lord as well. Uh, this is a cycle that just continues in the book of Judges. They worship other gods, and they come to near ruin. Then God remembers them, and he sends them a, an empowering judge. He, he tries to redeem them, and then they do it again. And as time goes on, those judges, they just become worse and worse and less and less helpful to the nation. And things are really, they've gotten out of hand in Israel. And the book of Judges, it closes with these words. And they just, 
encapsulate everything about that book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. Right? No king. Everyone did what seemed right to him, or everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. Uh, and so there's ways that we can relate even in our world today, uh, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, and so this is the setting of the story in the book of Ruth. It's, it's where we are, where everything's placed. It's like we get this book, Judges, right? And it covers all these big things that went on in Israel during the period of the Judges, right? It's mayhem. It's the worst of times. And in the midst of it, Here's this short little story about one family, right? A story about faithfulness in an unfaithful time. Now, jumping from Judges to Ruth, it takes us from this 30,000-foot view of a struggling nation in its infancy to an intimate close-up of, of one family, right? A plain family. There's nothing extraordinary about them. And the story shows us how God's faithful love impacted one woman, her family, the nation of Israel, and then the entire world, right? We're in a day when we have unprecedented global awareness and we find ourselves in the midst of some really big things too, right? There are big things happening, amazing technological advancements, ethical debates, national division, global poverty, large-scale injustice, environmental concerns, and of course, right, a heightened pandemic. And God cares about all those things, right? In an effort to recognize that it's not all about us, we want to know what's going on in the world, right? We want to consider ways that we might be able to help. We want to know that the world's bigger than us, right? Acknowledge our need for God in all the mess. But there's also a balance, right? God is the God of the universe. He's the God of the nations, but he's also our God, Right? He's the God of the individual, God in your circumstances, God over your circumstances. And this is what we're going to see as we walk through the book of Ruth together, that although God holds the world together, he cares about the story of one single family. Right? He cares about your story. God's, he's barely mentioned in this book. Uh, if you read through the book of Ruth, there are no miracles in this book. There's no angelic encounter. There are no prophecies. Right? But we see his hand in the lives of this family. We see his direction. We see his provision. We're going to see his loving kindness. And you know what? A lot of the time, this is what life looks like for us today. Right? Even as believers, this is what life looks like us today. We, we experience God through those ways of him interacting with us. Right? We're not given clear and customized prophecies for our lives, clear explanations of why things are happening. We're not always given face-to-face -face encounters with God and, and angels. Right? Most of us, many of us, that's not our experience. Yet God's still working in and through us to accomplish his will. And in that, he maintains his own love for us, his own faithful love. Right? This Hebrew word, chesed, right? And that's the big word in this book. It shows up in this book, this Hebrew word. It means loyal love, loving kindness, faithful love, covenant 
faithfulness. There's just, it's, there's a lot wrapped up in that one word that we can't quite translate into English. It's a love that keeps its promises, and it's a love that characterizes our God. In Exodus 34, this is the same word that God uses to describe himself to Moses. He says that he's full of hesed. So in this book uh, about God's loyal love to people uh, pictured in this book, when, when in Exodus, when God passes by uh, Moses, that's how he describes himself. Right? God is full of this. And so this is a book uh, about God's loyal love to people pictured in the loyal love that we see through Ruth and Boaz toward a woman named Naomi. And it's Naomi. Naomi is actually the main character of this book. And you'll see why when we start to get into it. So let's get into it. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1. It says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was named Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. And so this book opens during the time of the judges. There was a famine in the land. And we talked about that period of the judges, right? It was messy. It was full of blessings. It was full of curses, full of infighting, full of fighting with other nations. And we're not told why this famine has come to Bethlehem. We don't know. Was it a natural disaster? Is it God's judgment? Was it a raid from a neighboring nation? We don't know. We're not told. Right? But there was a famine. And because we're not Hebrew readers, we might miss some of the irony uh, in our English translations that Bethlehem, right, that literally means house of bread, right? And so the town called house of bread is having a food shortage. Right? That's something that the original readers would have seen right away. And then we're introduced to this certain man, and his name is Elimelech. And that's a Hebrew name that means God is my king. So remember, we're in the time of the judges. If we just finished the book of Judges, we're seeing that this is before Israel had a king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And now here's this man who's named God is my king. And he's leaving the promised land of Israel, the land that God gave them for the territory of Moab. Right? Moab is in modern day Jordan. Right? This was about a seven to 10 day journey on foot from Bethlehem that he, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons took. Uh, but the author, he doesn't dwell too long on the setup of the story. Uh, but as a reader, we can't help but ask the question, why Moab, right? Why did he go to Moab? This was a region that was outside of Israel, right? A region where God was not worshipped. They worshipped the God named Chemosh. Uh, he was a God who demanded child sacrifice, right? Israel was... Uh, larger than just Bethlehem, so why not go to another region of Israel for food? Why go to Moab? Again, we're not told why, or we're not given a moral stance even on the move, uh, but without a doubt, it's a questionable choice. I think anybody would have asked that question. For the man named God is my king to move and seek provision in a place that's far from his presence and his people, right? They settled in the fields of Moab. And in making that decision for his family, Elimelech sets his family up for really hard times. 
right? Or maybe a better way to say is he sets them up for hard times to hit harder. Moving isn't always wrong, right? But sometimes it's not the best idea, right? Generally, moving into isolation and, and away from the community of God it has negative consequences that we need to consider. Uh, the first is that they're setting themselves up to be influenced by the way of life in Moab. See, they're part of a young nation that God has called out of slavery to Egypt and called to be a light, called to be different from the nations around them. He delivered them into the promised land, and he's called them to look very differently, right? Uh, including abstaining from sacrificing children. And then here's this family, and they're walking away during hard times. And that's not always the best answer. And, and we know from later in the book that there are actually lots of people who stayed that made it through together. Uh, they set themselves up Elimelech and his family to be influenced by the culture of Moab. And we're going to see that they were, in fact, influenced. Um, but they also removed themselves from any and all support networks. Right? They, they left their larger family. They left their community uh, of God. They left their accountability. Uh, they left their shared life, which was a huge part of their culture in that place and time. So when hard times hit, they feel a lot harder when, when you don't have your people around you, right? And, and hard times are about to hit this family. And finally, uh, one of the things they did by making this move was to forfeit their ability to help in, in a time of need, right? They missed an opportunity to show faithful love, to show said, right, to their family and community, right? There was a famine, Right? This, is, this is all just practical reality. We're not given any explanation of their motivation in the scripture, so I'm not going to speak to that. I, I don't want to be harder on this family than the narrator himself is, but there are some consequences that accompanied Elimelech's decision uh, that we should talk about and we should think about ourselves. Right? As you consider big changes in your life, make informed decisions. Right? Know the answers to these questions and at least have a plan. Right? Ask the questions. Is this pulling me away from the community of God? Is this pulling me away from my support network? Is this pulling me away from accountability and toward compromise? It doesn't have to be moving. It can be any, anything. Right? Our decisions also affect others. Right? Sometimes we live like they don't, but they do. And we're going to see that this family experiences the very thing that they were all trying to avoid by moving. They experience death and loss. In verse 3, it says, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. We're not told at what point he died or even how he died. We don't know if it was the result of moving to Moab. We just know he died. Right? And we're not told how old the sons even were at this point, but Naomi loses her husband. She's left with her two sons. And despite their efforts to avoid it, tragedy hits this family. And they're alone, right, in a foreign place. In the next verse, we learn that at some point, Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. And this is more than just telling us what happens next. This is a statement. They were, they were planning on coming back, right? When they married Moabite women, that's a statement that they were not planning on coming back to Israel. They were making their home in Moab. 
the idea here is that they married two women who worshipped the god Chemosh, right? Not Yahweh, the god of Israel. Uh, and Israelites weren't really supposed to unite themselves with those who worshipped idols. And Moabites weren't actually even admitted into the, wor the worshipping congregation, right? And so there's something said about the plans that this family has when they make this choice. Right, Something said about the state of their faith. It's unlikely that this is the life Naomi envisioned for her two boys or for her family. They're far away from home, they're far away from family, and they're grieved. They're getting farther away from God. And the grief doesn't stop there for Naomi. The story continues in verse 5. It says, after they lived in Moab about 10 years, they've been gone 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Again, we're left wondering what happened. But in the end, Naomi is in a foreign land, left without her husband and her two children, left without any male in her life, which back then was a serious, serious danger. Right? At this place in time, women were fully dependent upon male protection and provision. Naomi lived in a tough world, right? Both in Israel and especially outside of Israel. Single women were open to being trafficked, abused, taken advantage of, homeless, destitute. Right? They couldn't really inherit property. Uh, in times like these, they relied on the mercy of their relatives, right? Maybe a father who would take their daughter back into their household or a relative of their husband who might marry them and take care of them. In, in Moab, Naomi doesn't have any of that, right? She's also older. She's past childbearing age. So sadly, in the eyes of that culture, to many, she's considered a liability, not an asset, right? And not only that, she feels responsible for these two other widows now that she has her daughters-in-law, right? And, and it's harsh to talk that way, but it was a, the harsh reality of the time. Right? We're talking upwards of 3,000 years ago. And again, Elimelech did not set herself, set her up very well for success. Disaster after disaster has hit this woman. She's experiencing her own dark times uh, during a time that's already super dark for everybody. And this takes its toll on her. Right? She's lost everything. After a decade away from home, she decides to return to Bethlehem. And we don't know if she ever wanted to go to Moab in the first place. Right? We don't know how much choice she had in the matter at all. But she's turning around. She's going to Bethlehem. In the same way, that, that, state, that shows us how our decisions affect others. Right? And likewise, the decisions of others affect us. Right? Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Right? And I don't know what we all came in here with uh, or what's on our plate this morning. But maybe you feel a little battered by life like Naomi does. Right? Maybe you're dealing with the fallout of other people's bad decisions. Right? They might have even been made generations ago. Right? You might feel alone. You might feel helpless, anxious, alienated because of your own loss of a loved one, whether by death or estrangement. Right? That's how universal this book was meant to be. We might not all be living in the exact same circumstance as Naomi, but we've all got our stuff, right? I felt all of these things at some point, right? At one point or another. And if you haven't felt them yet, or if you don't think you felt them that you are going to, right? Sometimes 
we're left wondering what went wrong or, or where God is. And that's another mystery that pops up in the beginning of this story. That's another question. Where is God? Where is God in all of this? I think the author wants us to ask this question. God's not afraid of that question either. You can earnestly ask him that. Where are you, God? Should we accuse him? No. Right? But we can ask him, show me where you are in this because I can't see it. A popular catchphrase right now is for people when, when people are overwhelmed or especially overwhelmed with grief is to just do the next right thing, right? Just do the next right thing. That's advice that people are given when they're suffering from grief and they're overwhelmed. And it seems like that's what Naomi is trying to do when she decides to go back home. I mean, she might even be on autopilot at this point. Verse six, it says, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Now, she's not running back filled with joy, right, about going home. She's returning empty, right, with the tattered remnants of her faith, and we'll talk more about her faith next week. But she's despondent, right? She's grieving, and she's hitting the road on a slow walk back to Bethlehem, back to her community, back to her family after being gone for 10 years, right? They didn't have the ability to call each other. They might have been sending each other letters. There's no FaceTime. There's no way to stay connected the way that we stay connected today. She's been gone for 10 years, but there's a community there that will receive her, right? She's not going back to wealth, that's for sure. Uh, we're going to see that later in the book. She relies on scraps of grain that were left behind by harvesters for survival. And she's not alone. She has two daughters-in-law with her. But what are people going to think of them, right? Moabites coming to Israel with this woman. These three ladies who really have nothing uh, nothing that they feel like they can offer and have no way to provide for themselves, right? These Moabite women joining her. She actually ends up telling them, turn around. Right? She tells them to leave her alone, to, to go back to their gods, to go find husbands for themselves because she has no remaining sons, right? So she has nothing to offer them in her eyes. Uh, but we know from further along in the story that that's actually not true, that she has nothing to offer, uh, but her world at this point is really small, and her view of God is lopsided. Right? And that can happen to us when, when we only use our circumstances to understand God. Right? And we're going to stop at this point in the story because I want to deal uh, with the next half of this chapter on its own. But this is a bleak picture, right, when we get to, to verse 7. But here's the encouragement that I want you to take home from the setting of this story, from the setup of this story. The first one is that we live ordinary lives, right? Just like Naomi, we're ordinary people. We're responding to the circumstances of our times, and that's okay, right? That's biblical. It's okay to live an ordinary life. And the whole book of Ruth, it normalizes this experience of believers who know God through his word and seek to honor him with their lives. 
apart from some crazy supernatural endowment or some crazy um, endowment of spiritual abilities or some crazy supernatural encounter of God, like we can still worship God and follow God in the mundane of life, right? In the everyday stuff of life. This is normal life. It's, it's how we respond in our circumstances that makes a difference. Right? Will we respond in faith and trust in the loving kindness and the faithful love of God, even if he feels silent? And the second is grief is part of life. Right? Grief is part of life. That's one thing that this setup tells us. Naomi and her daughters-in-law are weeping on the road to Bethlehem, weeping as they part ways. Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew that he was about to raise him from the dead. Right? Hope, hope helps, but hope doesn't negate grief. Right? Gain doesn't always replace what is lost. And that's okay. And lastly, this is just the beginning of the story. Right? This is just the beginning of the story. This is just the first seven verses of the story. Right? We have a lot more left to the book of Ruth. God is going to do a lot more. And just when it seems like he's silent, just when it seems like he's absent, he shows up in this book. Think of the years that have passed in Naomi's life at this point. Think of the grief, right? all of that. And it all amounts to just seven verses in this story. And that's the same for our lives today. If, if you're here this morning, if you, maybe you have, the, have decades of grief, decades of stuff that you're hanging on to, you have the potential to take decades of tragedy, whatever your life might look like, and turn them into seven short verses in a story of God's faithfulness. Right? God can do that. This doesn't mean that we're free from tragedy. It just means that your life can transform from being defined by what you've done and what's been done to you into what God is doing and what God is doing through you and for you, right? You can read ahead and see how this book ends. There's a reason why we're calling this uh, series, Ruth, a story of God's loving kindness. It might not start out looking like that, right? But God has an interest in your life. God has an interest in your welfare and even in your happiness, right? There's a verse in the hymn, Amazing Grace. It doesn't get sung very much these days, but it depicts what eternity will be like for those who have trusted in Jesus. And it goes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And when you think about eternity, it's almost like our whole lives have just become seven verses in a much longer story. Right? There's hope even for a life that starts and ends in tragedy because God has promised eternal life to those who believe in his one and only son, Jesus. Right? A descendant of Ruth. And we'll talk about how that worked out later. Born in Bethlehem, right? Jesus, born in the house of bread, remember? And where we see Elimelech, this man whose name means God is my king, leaving emptiness in Bethlehem, seeking to be filled, Jesus came from fullness and emptied himself for us. 
Right? God took on human nature. He walked the roads that these people walked. Right? He felt the hunger in his belly that these people felt. And unlike them and unlike us, Jesus never compromised. Right? He entered the darkness and was not consumed by it. He lived like God was his king, full of steadfast love, full of loving kindness. He didn't die during a failed attempt at a new life in a new land. He willingly gave up his life for us, for our sin, so that we could have new life, so that we could be filled. Every bad decision intentional, unintentional, every unwise move, every instance where we fall short, it's been forgiven. Jesus took it with him on the cross. Jesus paid for it. And I hope that that gives you a feeling of freedom, that God forgives you, that God loves you no matter what your circumstances are, that God covers you even when you make a mistake, that God knows your limitations. God cares about us ordinary people enough to die for us, right? So let's grieve the hard stuff fully, right? Let's hope fully at the same time as we look forward to the bigger story, right? It's not over yet. If you're here, it's not over yet, right? We have the gift of God to turn the biggest tragedies into just the few verses of the story God has for us.